Thanks, man. Thanks, Rob and Alicia. That was awesome. Thanks for sharing. You ruined my Bible. Guys, this morning, uh, if you haven't yet, please open up to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, and um, I just want to say Merry Christmas to you um, again. I'm going to say it to you every week. It's Christmas season, the best time of the year, right? And um, I just want to say Merry Christmas. I want to welcome you. If you've never been here before, uh, I'm just, I'm glad you're here, and I really do hope that you feel very much a part of what we're doing, whether you are a believer, if you're a Christian, or if you're not, and you're... Um, just seeking after God, I pray that, uh, that you'd feel very comfortable here and that you'd encounter him. Um, if you're new, though, uh, we would love it if you would fill out one of those Connect cards you grabbed or that you were handed to you in your branch notes and put those in the wooden boxes. Uh, we would love just to be able to help get you better assimilated if you're wanting to get more involved here. So uh, please do that at the end of our service. Um, Isaiah 9 is where we're at this morning, and uh, we're continuing in our Advent series called All is Calm. And uh, I just wonder this morning, when you think about Christmas, I'm just kind of curious what you actually think of. Like when you think of Christmas, what kind of words, what kind of images, um, what kind of experiences or memories sort of come to your mind? Right? I'm, I'm guessing uh, there's a whole bunch of different uh, things that you might have pop into your head. Uh, you might just broadly think of joy. Uh, you might broadly think of cheer. It's like the one time a year you use the word cheer, unless you're in England, right? We use the word cheer over here all of a sudden, right? We, you might laugh, you know, you might have Andy Williams, it's the most wonderful time of the year, just pop on into your head when I ask you that question. Uh, you might just imagine colorful lights, good food, hopefully. Uh, you might think of friends, you might think of family. Uh, some of you, uh, this is not a great time of year. Uh, Christmas just triggers feelings of loss or sadness. Uh, tragedy. Uh, all that to say, when we think of Christmas, uh, we have a lot of history with Christmas in this time of the year. And so when I ask a question like that, what do you think of? Uh, our answer is, I mean, it's pretty loaded, isn't it? I mean, we have like a plethora of things that might come into our minds. Um, guys, this morning in our time together, I would love it if just by the end of our time together, and especially throughout the remainder of this month of Advent, I would love it that when you hear that question, that one of the images or one of the thoughts that would pop into your mind would be the image of authority or rule. Now, I know for some of you, I just swore. I just like cussed while I preached. You know, you don't like the word authority. I totally get it. Um, and I swear I'm not trying to ruin Christmas for you at all this morning. That's not what I'm trying to do. But there is this massive truth about Christmas and what we're actually celebrating that I think we often overlook. We sing about it. You might not even realize that you sung about it in the first two songs a lot. But it's an image and an, and an understanding that we often overlook, even though we talk about it, even though it's sung from our lips time and time again. And so just before we embark upon this, I want to ask you this morning, when you think of uh, rule and you think of authority, I just want to ask you, who rules your life? Who rules your life? What kind of, who, who's the authority of your life? And are they a good ruler? Are they a really good ruler? Are they a good authority? You see, whoever your authority is, it will actually determine 
uh, your experience in this life, no matter what your circumstances are. And it will determine not only the things that are happening to you in the present, but it'll actually determine uh, your hopes and the security of your hopes being fulfilled in the future. See, someone's guiding you into the future right now. I hope you see that this morning. There's someone ruling you. Something is ruling you. And in Isaiah 9, the great promise of Christmas is the promise of a royal child who will rule. And when he rules, there is an experience and in a future that you will inherit if you submit to his rule, if you give your life to him. Right? This child rules, and if he rules you, your life will forever be changed. The, the, the roadmap is on the screen of where we're going. I just want us to first look at verses 1 through 5 and kind of just do an evaluation of your experience of whoever it is or whatever it is that rules your life. What's your experience of authority right now, today? Uh, but secondly, we see the king, the ruler that's actually given, and then verse 7 shows us the experience of what it's like to let him rule your life. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible. So verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read these again and just do this evaluation of our experience of authority. It says in verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Her is, is referring to a group of people, not just a woman. In the former time, he brought in, into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All right, so, so what's happening here? Uh, well, if you especially read chapter 8, and if you remember last week, when you're reading something that's prophecy, like the book of Isaiah, there's something that it's always addressing in the present. There's real people in real time that this message is first coming to, and it applies to their life. But in prophecy, it always has a view towards the future, towards a greater and ultimate fulfillment. But what's happening here in chapter 8, specifically the end of chapter 8, you'll notice people who are being invaded and they're being ruled by oppressive kings, primarily the nation of Syria. And so verse 22 of chapter 8, it kind of concludes with this really like bleak outlook on life. Just look up in verse 22. What does it say? It says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That doesn't sound good, does it? No. Um, some of you, honestly, you might feel like you're in verse 22 this morning. And if that's you, then there's, there's a significant hope that that's coming here. See, Isaiah uses the metaphors of darkness and light for oppression and liberation. Uh, darkness is the experience of oppression. Light is the experience of liberation. See, whenever foreign armies marched over the land to actually invade Israel, the first area to come under attack was the Galilee of the nations. That was the first area in the north. And so the Galileans, who this is addressing here in the beginning, they knew slavery. They knew what that was like. They knew what it was like to feel utterly despaired, you know? 
This was their experience. So people here in these verses, they're struggling. They're not only a bit hopeless, they're experiencing dark oppression. Guys, you discover this very clearly when you see what's being promised to them. Because what's being promised to them is what they don't have, naturally. Like it, like it wouldn't make any sense to be promising them something if they already had it, right? Like this is intuitive to us, it's, it's logical to us, right? If they had it, you wouldn't need to promise them these things. It's, it's kind of like if you, um, if you didn't have a car and you really needed a car, you know, to get to work, to get to your classes, you know, to travel to Portland for the holidays or something like that, and you literally did not have a car and someone said to you, hey, Amanda, I'm going to give you a car, right? That, that sounds awesome, right? That, that's good news, right? That would feel like light in the darkness. But if you already own like an amazing brand new car and someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to give you a brand new car, you're going to say what? Like, okay, thanks. Like you don't really need it, right? You're a good Oregonian. You don't want to, you know, expand your carbon footprint or whatever it is in society. And so you're like, I already have a car. I don't need a car. It doesn't make any sense to promise you something, to, to fulfill something that you don't have a need of. I'm just, I'm just pointing this out because if you read verses 2 through 5, you can actually see the experience of what these people are going through, right? These people are, are being governed in a certain way, and it's creating something that is the opposite of what's being promised here. So just look through this. Verse 2, they're walking in darkness. The second line of verse 2 actually says deep darkness. Like we all know darkness. If you go into a dark room, you can't see anything until you turn a light on. That's what darkness is like, right? Darkness implies that you can't see, that you can't perceive, that you can't make sense of anything around you. In the, in the Bible, darkness is an imagery of judgment. It, it's, it's showing you that God's people often are enshrouded in our sin. It creates this sense of darkness. We can't perceive things as we ought to perceive them. Uh, verse 3, though, uh, we see here that they're being promised that they will experience joy, abundance, generosity. It's this idea of harvest time is what you see here. What else are they doing? They're, they're dividing the spoil. What does that communicate? Victory over your enemies. That's what you do after a battle. Well, then what does this mean that these people are experiencing currently? It's not joy. It's sorrow. Right? They're experiencing little, not abundance. They're not victorious over their enemies. Their enemies are victorious over them. Verse 4, these people are carrying burdens. They're being ruled in an oppressive way. See, whoever it is that's ruling them is burdening them and is oppressing them. Verse 5, it shows you imagery of, of being beaten and battered and bleeding like you're a soldier in battle. That's the imagery. This is not a reality of peace that these people have. It's a reality of war. Now, now all these verses... They're promising hopeful victory and peace to people, but you must not gloss over this, and we must realize that in their current situation, they are experiencing pain. They're experiencing loss, darkness, these types of things. Why? Why are they experiencing these things? What's got them into this situation? Well, it's because they have a bad ruler. Do you see that? Someone's invaded, is ruling them, and they're a terrible ruler. That's why this is their reality. Do you see this? This promise, this prophecy, it's powerful to them. It's hopeful news to them because the people being promised this 
understand the bleakness of their situation, right? They don't have a car, right? They, they, they understand the awfulness of the authority that's over them. This isn't working out the way that they would hope. And so the question is begged during a passage like this when you're reading it, again, I've already asked you it, but who rules you? And what's your experience like? What's your experience like? I mean, many of you know this and you've experienced this. You know what it's like to have to submit to a boss or a leader and they're a really bad leader. Like, you know what that experience is like. I mean, their, their foolishness, their short-sightedness or their selfishness, their lack of concern for you, their desire to protect their own reputation, or maybe their recklessness has put you in a place where you feel burdened, you feel oppressed, you feel beaten down, maybe emotionally wounded in a way. You feel disoriented. You're like, gosh, I just, I just need to get out of this situation. You've maybe been there before. Or maybe, maybe your authority isn't a person right now, and you're trying to figure this out. You know, maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's more like an idea or a value. There's something that governs your life and dictates all the decisions that you make. It dictates the, 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 the things that you're hoping for and that you're after. I mean, maybe it's something like comfort or pleasure. It just governs your life all the time. So basically, no matter what day it is, no matter what it is that you're going through, you're being governed by this thought that says, I'll do this if it feels good. If it feels good, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. If there's any form of resistance or difficulty or friction, I'm just I'm going to back out. That governs your life. Or maybe it's just you're governed by the whole mantra of like safety, Safety, so there's never any risk, ever. You live your life in fear of just, quote unquote, losing. Whatever it is that you're afraid of losing, you're governed by the, the value, if you will, of safety. That's ruling your life. Maybe you're the opposite in the spectrum and you, you freak out all the people governed by safety because you're being governed by risk and adventure. You know, that, that's like what you're governed by, excitement. So you feel like you need to be always doing something that's big, something that's awesome, and if you're not, you're like, I gotta get out of my situation and get into something bigger and more awesome. Or maybe it's just you're governed by the voice of the crowd. So whatever the crowd is, you know, if they, if they tell you you should be doing something or thinking a certain way, you're just like, well, I'll go with that. And oftentimes in your life, that might even manifest itself in, in reading the Bible and, and looking at things that God has clearly said for forever, and you're like, well, maybe the Bible's wrong all of a sudden because all these people are telling me to do this. So I'm governed by the crowd. Or, or maybe you're governed by just freedom and whatever that means for you. You just don't want to be tied down in any way. You want to be able to go here or there or whatever it is and never be tied down. And so you're governed by your own sense of freedom, whatever that is for you. All right, these are just a few things that I was, I was thinking through or ideas that might govern you this morning. Or some of you, you've experienced such bad authority from maybe a father or a mother, or a boss, or a teacher, or a spiritual leader, or even a pastor. And that's ruined you so much so that you might even say this morning, Josh, nobody rules me. I'm a free person. No one has authority over my life. See, most likely, I would say that's, that's most of us in this room. That's what we perceive when I'm asking you that question. You're like, well, I am my own authority. I govern my own life. You know, outside of like some civic authorities, you know, like police officers, hopefully, you know, or, or some government officials or something, you know, maybe a boss. You're like, no one rules my life. I rule my life. 
You know, your own, you're your own authority then. So I was asking you this morning, are you a good ruler? Are you doing a good job? I mean, this was actually the temptation in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. Um, this is when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve. This is the great temptation. He comes to them and he says, you know, you guys were meant to rule your own life. You guys are supposed to be gods, like God. You're supposed to rule your own life. And the problem is God is holding out on you. He's just a little insecure. Right? He doesn't want you to eat this stuff because he knows that you will, you'll rule your own life. And so you need to disobey God and you need to be ultimately free. And if you do that, then you could be the authority for your own life. This was like the great temptation from the very beginning in the garden, right? It's, it's being our own ruler. So the question still remains for even somebody like you, if you say this morning, I, I rule my own life, someone who thinks they, they govern their own life, this is the question still, what's your experience like underneath your own authority? Are you a good authority? Is that, is that working out for you? Do you, do you have all the wisdom to make the right decisions? Do you see the whole picture? Right? I mean, I was just thinking even this week, uh, my four-year-old went over the, the little Christmas tree that we have for the kids. It's the one that my wife lets them decorate kind of the non-classic-looking ornaments on, okay? That's their tree. And Gus goes over there, and I was so glad I was in the room because he, he was looking at them, and he grabbed this ornament off the tree. It was, like, made out of a cinnamon stick. And he goes, Dad, this is food. And uh, I was like, uh, kind of. You know, like it's kind of food, but you shouldn't eat it. And I was like, I'm so glad I'm here. He would have lost another tooth or something trying to chomp on that cinnamon stick or whatever, just thinking, like, if this is food, then, man, I, you know, I could eat this thing. You know, I mean, do you have, I'm so glad that he's not his own authority yet, you know? I mean, people, I'm glad I was there. That's all I'm going to say, right? Do you have the whole picture, right? Do you always make the right choices? Like when you do something and you experience the pain of that, do you go, I'm never going to do that again? Or are you like me and you're like, I'm never doing that again. And then next week you're like, I, was, I said I was never going to do that again, you know? And you're back to square one. Do you see, you're submitting to someone's rule in your life, even if it's yourself, and I'm just curious if we're humble enough to answer the question with sobriety this morning, is the authority over us a good authority? What's our experience like? See, we need a better ruler, and that's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of Christmas, because that's what God's sending. He, he, Christmas is, we celebrate that God sends a king, a king. Verse six, for to us a child is born, to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, we see in places like Luke 2, John 3, 16, and you just are intuitively wired at this point, because this is read every single year, you know that this is referring to Jesus, it's referring to Jesus, right? This child who is to be born, this promised child is none other than Jesus. This isn't even really debated in any Christian circle. This is the climactic Old Testament promise about the advent of Jesus, the Son of God, who's actually come. See, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us as a, is a child. That's His answer to you. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots, right, of this world that he can defeat them 
by becoming a, a mere child. Right? His answer to the bullies that are swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. But notice something very different about this child. He has a government, like from birth. Do you have a government? Right? He has a government, okay? He's a ruler, like he's a child king, okay? Well, what's his name? He's got a bunch of names here. Right? He's not schizophrenic, he's just got all these names because names tell you something about who a person is. We, they named people you know, better than we name people now. Now we just name people because it sounds cool. You know? We're like, what does that mean? You're like, I don't know, it just sounds great. You know? But back then, you would name somebody something for a reason. It would, it would communicate something about that person. Well, he's got four names here. What are his names? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As these names are not random, they're not chosen because they sound cool, right? They're his name because they tell you about what this child king does. Right? But notice something, that all these names that are assigned to him are, first and foremost, they're God's names. So you can't steal these names for your kids, okay? They're God's names, and he's God, right? We, we talked about this last week. If you, if you want to go back and listen, if you weren't here last week, we talked about the idea that he's God with us. He's, these are God's names. But number two, notice, these are names of authority. These are names of authority, aren't they? Think about it. A counselor is somebody that you seek out and you posture yourself in a way that you're listening to their advice, right? And you're listening for their wisdom and then you're applying it to your life, right? So a counselor is a person of authority and if you have a really bad counselor, the counsel that you apply, it's gonna be really damaging, isn't it? Or if you have a good counselor, the counsel that you apply will be life-giving. Well, what, what kind of counselor is this child king? Well, he's a wonderful counselor, I mean, if he's God, just think about it. If he's God, uh, if he's God, he kind of knows how life works, doesn't he? He kind of designed this whole thing. That makes him a great counselor. But even more so than just knowing how life works, this counselor has actually walked a mile in your shoes, so to speak. That's what makes him an even better counselor. Jesus has done that. He's actually walked in your shoes. He carries the infinite wisdom of God in his counsel, but he also carries the experience and the empathy of knowing what it is that you're going through this morning. He's the best kind of counselor. But he's also a prince. Now, we know this. I mean, we don't have princes in America. It'd be, it'd be nice, but we don't, okay? A prince is a royal person who has authority. So they, they rule over people in a specific way that affects the livelihood of the people that they rule. But this prince is the prince of peace. That means when he governs, it always, always produces peace every time. It's just what happens. He's the opposite of what these people are experiencing. He's not a tyrant who burdens and oppresses people. He rules with peace. He's a father, right? So a father is, is an image of an authority figure in a home, for better or for worse, Right? I mean, a father has authority, and that authority is used to either raise and build up children or abuse children and tear them down. And some of you have different experiences with that. Some of you, my heart breaks 
So I know your experience has been the latter. And some of you have a mixed bag in there. And so even when you hear everlasting father, you cringe, right? Well, what kind of fatherly figure is this child king? He's an everlasting father. That means that he's, he's always been a father, like always has been, always will be. So uh, if that's the case, that's cool, but what kind of father is he? What is our experience like? If he's never-ending, ever-present, fathering is abusive or is it life-giving? Well, if he's a wonderful counselor, and if he's a prince of peace, I'd assume that he's wise in raising you, and his fathering is peaceful. Right? So there's an image here of, of a comfort or a nearness or a kindness or a tenderness towards you that is unparalleled. But he's also mighty God, which, I mean, I can't think of another title that has more authority to it. Can you? You know? He's not just a God, he's God. He's not just God, he's mighty God. He's got the power, the might, the ability to accomplish whatever it is that he wills. He can just do it. I mean, think about this. You guys, think about this. This is a brief yet, quote unquote, ponder it for hours, you know, kind of description of Jesus. I mean, the child king who is born, more than born, we're told he's given, He's given at Christmas. All right, so when you celebrate Christmas, you're celebrating that a new king has arrived, and he's a king that God has given to the world. He has a government, and he rules in these ways. So just look at Jesus this morning. As a wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies for life. Let's follow him. Right, as, as the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting Father, He loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy Him. As the Prince of Peace, He reconciles us with God while we were God's enemies. Let's welcome His rule in our life. Look at who this King is. Look at Jesus. There is a King who has been given to the world, Jesus, and these are His names. You see, Christmas is actually all about ruling. It's about authority. I don't know if you've, I don't, if you've ever really thought about this. Christmas is about a king. We sing about it. He rules the world with truth and grace. We sing it and come now long expected Jesus. So if, if you're anything like me, Christmas is a time where we, I think, primarily think about Jesus as a savior. We think about him as a, as a rescuer. We like the idea of Jesus rescuing us and, and healing us, but but he doesn't just save us, guys. He doesn't just save you and die for your sins so that you can keep ruling your own life. That, would, that, wouldn't, be very, that wouldn't be very kind. Look at where it got us. See that? That's how we got into our oppression. If we only think of him as a savior, it'd be like the equivalent of, like, have you ever done this? Have you ever, like, taken an elevator and you're trying to get down to a certain floor? and somebody on a different floor hits, hits the button they want to get on, and you just waltz right off. And if you're anything like me, you walk around for too long, and you're like, this is weird. I don't, this is not where I thought I was headed. You know, and you're looking around, and, and you finally realize, like, oh my gosh, I got off early, and you turn around, and it's too late, and you got to wait again for the elevator. Right? Have you ever got off the floor, on the wrong floor, on an elevator? Right? If you, if you approach Jesus, and you're like, I love Jesus as Savior, and, and you don't embrace him as Lord, you're, you're getting off too early. Right? He's, he's a package deal in who he is. 
right? If you ask Jesus to save you but not rule you, you won't experience, honestly, how amazing Jesus is. It's amazing that he would save you. It's amazing he would die for you. It's amazing that he's gracious towards you and forgiving of you of your sin. But if you don't submit to him as Lord of your life, you won't experience the goodness and the joy that comes in following him. And over time, you're like, this doesn't feel like I've arrived where I thought I was arriving yet. It's because you're trying to parse Jesus out. You can't do that. He isn't just a savior. He's Lord. We don't get to choose. If we, if we go for Jesus, we, we, we have to get both. You can't parse them out. I mean, just think about it. The solution of the announcement of Jesus' arrival here in Isaiah 9 is related to a light dawning. A light has come, it's dawned from the outside of the world into the world. And, and you and I know that if we want to experience something like the sun, if you want to experience the sun, you want to be near the sun, you have to experience you're going to have both what? Light and heat, right? You get both. You can't be near the sun and have one or the other. If you want light, even right here, the candle, if I just put my hand over the candle, right? If I, if I want some heat, I'll get heat, but I have to experience the light too. If you want heat, you need the sun. You need the light. If you want light, you're going to have to have heat. Now, I know uh, there's some vague to differing that could happen because we've had some sunny days here in Corvallis. It's been in the 40s. But normally, light comes with heat, doesn't it, right? You can't, you can't parse these things out. So if you get to the place this morning where you want to receive this light that is dawning, that the child king, what will your experience look like if you submit to him? What will it look like? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth, today, right now, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the experience of Jesus' rule, we see in verse 7, the first part of the, the verse, his government will increase and have no end. It's just always increasing. It's expanding. But as it increases, as his rule increases across the world, it brings with it the increase of peace. Never the opposite. I mean, don't you, don't you want peace? Don't you want peace? Whatever it is this morning that rules you, is your experience always peace? And is that even increasing in your life? Whatever that is. There will never be an end to peace. God doesn't have good days and bad days. His days of ruling have no end, and therefore his peace has no end. I mean, this, this word peace in Hebrew, it's the word shalom. It means basically when all things are as they should be. That's what peace means. And, and think about it. We see this most perfectly exemplified in the Garden of Eden again. Genesis 1 and 2, when you have Adam and Eve in the garden, they have what? Perfect peace. Everything is as it should be. God is their God. What ruined the peace? They wanted to rule their own life. Enter the absence of peace. Right? We, we see this. The fall brings the absence of peace. Most prominently, the, the absence of peace between God and people. And so here we, we must realize that his peace has no end. 
And this is, this is significant because a lot of people for a long time thought, oh, this is going to be some king that comes. And so when you read the rest of the Isaiah, you see that this king comes, King Hezekiah, and he's a really good king, and he rules. And while he rules, there is peace amongst all the people that he rules. But then Hezekiah, and they're like, oh, maybe this is the king. Maybe this is the child. This is the royal child that's born. But then Hezekiah comes to the end of his life, and he says, well, at least there will be peace in my days. And then he dies. Everyone's like, well, I guess it wasn't him, because whoever this is that's going to come and rule has no end of days. And the bummer is that whoever came after Hezekiah didn't do a good job. There wasn't peace anymore. And so enter the great, great, great times 15 great-grandson of Hezekiah, Jesus. If you read Matthew chapter 1, Christmas carries with it, guys, the great promise, the great hope that a new king has come and he will never die. He will always rule and therefore peace will always be the experience and it will always increase. The, the Christ child's first coming promise is a second one also. And we see that when he comes a second time, we sing this every year at Christmas. It says, he will come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We know that that will be our experience when he comes the second time. As the Prince of Peace, he will restore shalom on that day. He will restore full spiritual, social, economic, political, cultural flourishing for every person, place, or thing in his kingdom. Guys, he promises that our best days, our best days are always ahead of us and never behind us. No matter what you're going through right now, if Jesus is your ruler, your best days are always ahead and never behind you. How can you be sure? How can you be sure? What does it say at the end? This is like my favorite part, this whole thing. What does it say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just think about it. This is amazing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. He'll do this. What does the word zeal mean? It actually means, it's this image, it means to become intensely red like in your face, okay? So this is suggesting that the idea of color flooding a person's face with this flush of deep emotion within. Right, this is the same word used to describe a husband's jealousy for his wife. You see this in the book of Proverbs, the same zeal is used in that sense. It's, it's used in the book of Ecclesiastes to, to describe the envy that drives human effort. The same word zeal is used uh, to describe the love that burns in the hearts of a bride and a groom in the Song of Psalms, Song of Solomon. Right? Interesting because this is prophecy. This is, I read, we just read prophecy today, and every time you're reading prophecy, it's saying God will do this. God will do this. That's what it means. So it's interesting you're reading something that says God will do this, and at the end it goes, and by the way, God will do this. Like, this is like so wonderful. God's gonna do this, and just so you know, God is going to do it, right? That's what this is saying to you. I had this friend in uh, college, and we were way too sarcastic with each other all the time. And so uh, we had this, like, code word. And so whenever we're talking and someone's describing something, they, you know, they were actually being truthful about it or whatever, and we didn't believe the other person, we would go, serious conversation? And the, the person had to go, serious conversation. Or they had to say, no, I'm joking. It was like the breaking point, okay? This might sound weird to you, whatever. But nonetheless, you could be telling the truth and someone says serious conversation, you're like, 
Yep, serious conversation. I'm telling the truth. Right? God's saying, I will do this. Serious conversation. Right? The zeal of the Lord will do this. Consider it done. Right? Just consider it done. I mean, think about this. What can your zeal do? What can yours do? I mean, my zeal only works until I get tired or I, I run up against something that's way more powerful than me, and then it doesn't work anymore. Right? This is the zeal of God. He's not just any God. He's the God of armies. No army can stop him. It's, it's, what's done is done. Like, he's, 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 he's promised it. It's going to happen. This will be the experience. And it is now. I love This will be on the screen. This is um, from uh, Ray Ortland's commentary in Isaiah. He says, the most weighty words in this text come at the end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is zealous. The idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is not wrong, but it's incomplete. He's also zealous Jesus, brave and bold. And Isaiah is saying that the this that God intends to accomplish will occur with a zeal from the undivided heart of no one less than the Lord of hosts. Jesus' rule is certain. The experience described under his rule is guaranteed. I mean, just think about how weird this is. In verses 2 through 5, they're written in past tense, but they're telling you something about the future. I was sitting there this week um, talking to, to Mitchell about this. I was like, this is so weird. It'd kind of be like me saying, hey, Jeff, I'm going to take you to Disneyland. You've ridden Thunder Mountain Railroad, and you've eaten $10 churros all day, and you've taken your picture with Mickey. Right? Doesn't that sound weird? To be like, hey, I will do this. It's already happened. That's literally the, 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 the grammar that's used here. It's, it's already done. It, it's, it's, what's done is done. How can it be? Because of God's zeal. My zeal, it bulldozes people until someone can bulldoze me. What did God's zeal do? What did his zeal do? That jealousy that a husband has for his wife, what did it do? Did it bulldoze people? No, it, it drove him, actually, to the lowest place, to the place of, of greatest humility. It drove him to the cross. That's the zeal of your king. But why did he do that? We're told he did that to make peace between you and God. That's why he did it, because we didn't have it, and I couldn't accomplish it. But the king came, and he accomplished it for you. And now that he's made peace between you and God, if you've trusted him as savior and you've given your life to his rule, the promise is he'll come again and when he comes, his government will ever increase and his peace will ever go forward. Do your rulers and your authorities do that in your life? Do they go to the bottom? I, I'll never forget the story. I have to share. It's a story of, I read it in Tim Keller's book, um, Every Good Endeavor. He tells a story about this woman who worked at a TV network. I've told this to you, a few of you before. She worked at a TV network, she was really new at the job, and she did something really, she screwed up royally early on in her work, like fireable offense kind of thing. But her boss right above her went to their main boss, you know what he did? He took credit for all the stuff that she did that was wrong. 
He went in and he's like, hey, it's my fault. I should have trained her better. You know, I should have done X, Y, and Z. Don't fire her. And he took the hit. He really did. He took a hit in his status in the company. And that lady was like so blown away by that. She's like, I'm so confused. I've had a lot of bosses who've taken credit for the good things that I've done, saying they did it, but I've never had a boss take credit for the bad things that I've done, saying they did it. How in the world could you do that? He says, well, let me tell you. My whole life is based upon the reality that Jesus gave me all the credit for all the good things that he did. He applied his perfect standing to me. That's what he meant. And my whole life is based on the fact that he took credit for all the bad things that I did. So this just makes sense to me. And her response was, uh, where do you go to church? And it was just, it just blew her mind. Do you have authorities like that in your life? This is what Jesus did for you. This is what your king did for you. This is what his zeal drove him to. So what's your response? What should our response at Christmas be if this is what Christmas is about? Well, I'll just, we'll put it to you the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 4. We'll put it on the screen. We'll end with this. Jesus quotes Matthew 9. It says, now when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We just read that. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent. The king's here. We don't have a kingdom arriving without a king. The king is here. So what is the response that's demanded of us at Christmas? It's repent. It's saying, I'm going to stop ruling my own life. I'm going to stop and, 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 and repent of, of letting other things rule my life. Whether it's, it's comfort, it's safety, it's risk, it's the crowd, it's my personal freedom, right? It's, it's so-and-so. They're not going to rule my life. I repent. The king is here. I'm giving my life to his rule. And let me tell you guys, if you do that, that's when peace comes. That's when the gospel gets real good. That's when it gets amazing. This is the message of Christmas, that the king is here. Peace is only found in Jesus, you guys, every time, in the midst of chaos, if Jesus is your king. The circumstances could be crazy, but internally, all will be calm because the king's on his throne and no one can ever dethrone him. Let's all stand together and let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that today would be a day where all of us might uh, just humble ourselves, come to you, trust you and your goodness, God. Lord, I do pray that we would see how you really are our rightful king, our rightful ruler, and I know that's weird and hard for some of us because we're never told that. 
I know everyone's telling me that I'm just my own person, I can do whatever I want, that kind of stuff, and uh, this feels even difficult for me at times, Lord, and I just know that, um, that you're trustworthy, you're good, that when we give our lives to you, um, I pray that we would just experience, all of us in this room, that we would experience you as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. God, would our hearts bow to you this morning. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.